As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. And right now you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. In the early morning hours of September 1st, 1939, about a million and a half German troops crossed the 1,750-mile Polish border. At the same time, a massive squadron of German Luftwaffe began bombardment of Polish airfields. While all this was going on, German warships and U-boats began attacking Polish naval forces in the Baltic Sea. Nazi leader Adolf Hitler made the rather bold claim after this that this wasn't an invasion after all. Rather, it was a purely defensive action. But Britain and France weren't convinced, and on September 3rd, they declared war on Germany, thus beginning World War II. Hitler believed his invasion of Poland would bring with it what he referred to as Liebenstrom, or living space, for the German people. The fact that the space he chose was already occupied mattered little to Hitler since, to him, those occupants were just racially inferior Slavs, ripe for conquest by his Aryan race. The Polish army was able to mass a force of one million men in defense of their homeland, but they remained hopelessly outmatched by the vastly superior German forces. The Poles hoped they would be able to hold out long enough so that an offensive could be mounted against Germany in the West. But on September 17th, Soviet forces mounted an invasion of their own from their own border with Poland, and after that the country was lost. During the German occupation of Poland, nearly 3 million Polish Jews were killed in the Nazi death camps. Nazi SS quickly swept through the major cities looking for any signs of opposition. Starvation, looting, and murder became the natural order throughout the country. During the war, the Poles that weren't immediately rounded up and murdered by the Nazis were forced to flee and abandon all they owned in exchange for their lives. No corner of the country was safe. By 1943 and 1944, the conflict spread into the province of Galicia, where the majority of the population was Ukrainian but still contained a large Polish presence as well. One such person who grew up in Galicia amidst all this turmoil was a French-born child named Andrzej Bamberski. He was born the son of Polish Catholics in 1937. His parents emigrated to France in the 1930s, although by the time war broke out in 1939, Andrei was living with his grandparents in Galicia, where he had a front row seat to the horrors of war. Although during the war the threat of death remained constantly near, Andrei managed to survive it all. He mostly credited his family with keeping him safe. In 1945, Andre was eight years old and he'd already seen more death and destruction than any child should have to witness in a hundred lifetimes. 
After the fighting was over, Andre was reunited with his parents by the International Committee of the Red Cross. He grew up, went to school, and became a successful accountant. He eventually settled in the Moroccan city of Casablanca, where he met and fell in love with a beautiful young woman named Danielle Gonin. She was the daughter of French expatriates who had settled in the North African city during the 1950s. By the 1960s, Andre and Danielle were married. While living in Casablanca, they had two children, a son, Nicholas, and a daughter they named Kalinka, after a particular wildflower that grows in the forests of Poland. As their firstborn child, Kalinka quickly became the light of Andre's life. She was a sweet and bubbly little girl with long blonde hair, huge blue eyes, and a broad, infectious smile. In 1974, the family was living just four doors down from a wealthy doctor attached to the German consulate named Dieter Kronbach. Even though Kronbach's children attended the same international school as Andre's kids, at the time, Andre Bamberski didn't know Kronbach very well. But at the same time, it would be impossible to not notice him. Kronbach was suave and good-looking, and he always walked around with the haughty air of an aristocrat. The two men would nod hello to one another from time to time as they passed each other on the street, although they never took the time to get to know one another better. Andre's family finally left Morocco in 1974. They settled in the French village of Peshbesk, not far from where Danielle had grown up. Around the same time, Kronbach also left Morocco relocating to a new home in Bavaria. The following year, Danielle announced that she had taken a job with a real estate office in Nice, some 350 miles to the east. Rather than uproot their family again, Danielle told Andre she planned on renting an apartment in the city, where she would live during the week, returning home to see him and the children on weekends. Oddly enough, she refused to give her husband the name or telephone number of her new employer. This, of course, raised Andre's suspicions. So one Sunday evening, he followed Danielle as she drove away from home. Instead of heading in the direction of Nice, Danielle drove to nearby Toulouse, where she parked her car in the garage of an upscale apartment building and went inside. When Andre asked the concierge about her, the man told him that his wife was known to them as Madame Kronbach. Andre was devastated. He had no inkling that Danielle had been unfaithful. When he confronted her, she finally admitted that she had fallen madly in love with Kronbach. Andre and Danielle soon divorced, and she went off to live with Dieter Kronbach in Bavaria in 1975. She initially granted Andre custody rights of their children, but in July 1980, Andre announced his plans to move with the children back to Morocco. Just a few days after Andre left France, Danielle filed a motion in the French courts demanding sole custody of their son and daughter. Andre's attorney advised him to not challenge the motion, and eventually Andre ceded custody to Danielle. He settled once again in Peshbesk while Nicholas and Kalinka went to live with their mother and Dieter Kronbach in Lindau, Bavaria. Under the new court arrangement, Andre was only allowed to see his children during holidays. Kalinka had always been extremely close with her father, and living in Germany caused her to miss him dearly. She lived during the week as a boarder attending a French-language high school in the German city of Freiburg, where she complained she didn't know anybody and she barely spoke German. 
She spent weekends and summers living with her mother Danielle and stepfather Dieter Kronbach. By July 1982, Danielle had finally grown so tired of Kalinka's constant complaining about being homesick that she finally agreed to allow her daughter to move back to live with Andre the following month. But that never happened. At around 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, July 10, 1982, the telephone rang at Andre Bamberski's home. It was his ex-wife, Danielle, calling to inform him that Kalinka was dead. Although officially the cause of death would be listed as natural causes, this revelation would lead Andre Bamberski on a 30-year odyssey to uncover the truth of what really happened to his beloved daughter. Andre's search for the truth would soon turn into a hunt for justice against the man he believed murdered his little girl. Andre would give up everything, his friends, his money, his freedom, in order to find justice for Kalinka. I'm Nate Hale, reminding you to get your enemies before they get you. And this is The Conspirators. On that terrible day in July of 1982, Andre couldn't believe what his ex-wife Danielle was saying to him. He sank into a chair, the telephone receiver feeling as if it weighed a hundred pounds in his hand. How could this have happened, he asked Danielle. Healthy, athletic teenagers don't just die. The story Danielle told him was this. On Friday, July 9th, 1982, Kalinka spent the day windsurfing on Lake Constance, a clear blue body of water that lie in the shadow of the Austrian Alps. By the time she returned home around 5 p.m., she complained that she wasn't feeling very well. The family sat down to dinner around 7.30 p.m., although Kalinka told everyone she was tired, and she went to bed soon after that. She got up to fetch a glass of water around 10 p.m., then, according to Kronbach, headed back to her bedroom to read for a few hours before he noticed her bedroom light was still on, and he told her to get some rest. The following morning around 10 a.m., Dieter Kronbach dressed in his equestrian clothes for his morning ride through the nearby mountains, when he stopped by Kalinka's bedroom and tried to wake her. Instead, he found the 14-year-old girl lying dead underneath the covers. Kronbach would later tell authorities that he attempted to revive her by giving her an injection of a central nervous stimulant called Coramin directly into her heart, along with two more doses of a pair of stimulants called Novotigil and Isoptin into her legs, but he was several hours too late. The autopsy would later put Kalinka's death sometime between three and four in the morning. According to Danielle, Kronbach had two theories on what had happened. Either Kalinka had suffered heat stroke from overexposure to the sun the previous day, or perhaps she had suffered some long-delayed effects from a car accident that occurred in Morocco back in 1974. Sometimes, Kronbach said, such deadly symptoms can lie dormant for years at a time before surfacing unexpectedly. At first, Andrei Bamberski accepted these findings at face value. Kalinka's death left him emotionally devastated, her body was brought back to France, where she was buried in the church cemetery in Peshbesk. His ex-wife, Danielle, 
Peter Kronbach, Andre's son Nicholas, and Kronbach's children all attended the funeral. It wouldn't be until October 1982 after Andre finally received a translated copy of the autopsy report that he began to realize that something was very wrong with the official story. He learned from the report that a forensic physician named Dr. Hallman had carried out the autopsy. Also in attendance that day was a police superintendent from Lindau and a local prosecutor. But what shocked Andre most of all was the last person in attendance was none other than Dieter Kronbach. This was a most unusual breach of protocol for authorities to have allowed the victim's stepfather to actually be present at the autopsy. But this was only the first of many revelations that raised Andre's suspicions. Dr. Holman reported finding blood on Kalinka's vagina, as well as an unidentified viscous whitish-green substance inside. Holman also noted a fresh puncture mark on Kalinka's right upper arm that was attributed to an intravenous injection of what Kronbach later described as an iron supplement. Kronbach admitted to administering an injection to Kalinka shortly before dinner, at first claiming it was meant to help her tan, but later changing his story and saying it was to treat anemia. The autopsy report was also equally as suspicious for the things it did not contain as the things it did. Dr. Holman never conducted any toxicology tests on the blood or tissue. Likewise, the doctor never tested to determine whether Kalinka was still a virgin. Instead, Dr. Holman listed the cause of death as unknown. Holman did later claim to have sent out blood and tissue samples to a forensic lab for further analysis. But when Bambersky pressed his ex-wife to discover the results of those tests... She finally admitted to him days later that no such tests had ever been conducted. When Andre tried to express to Danielle his suspicions, she blew him off. This alarmed him even more. He couldn't believe his ex-wife didn't want to learn more about what had killed their daughter, but Danielle remained satisfied with what Kronbach told her. She told an incredulous Andre, Kalinka died because it was her time to die. But Andre refused to leave it alone. He was convinced after what he read that Dieter Kronbach had raped his daughter, then murdered her with an injection to keep her quiet. He shared this belief with a few French doctors who agreed it was outrageous that no tests had been done to test for sexual intercourse, despite evidence that the girl's genitals had been torn, as well as the presence of what appeared to be semen. Bambersky hired his own attorneys who pressured the German prosecutor into ordering more tests. In 1983, a German forensic scientist named Wolfgang Spann issued a report condemning Dieter Kronbach for injecting Kalinka with a controversial iron supplement named Cobalt Berlicet that had no proven value in either enhancing one's tan or treatment of anemia. In fact, it was known that improper administration of the supplement could lead to nausea, fever, vomiting, and in extreme cases, cardiac arrest. Spann's report suggested this is precisely what happened to Kalinka. The presence of food particles in her lungs and esophagus suggested the girl had gone into anaphylactic shock, lost consciousness, then died by asphyxiating on her own vomit. But despite being so firm as to Kalinka's cause of death, Spann remained less conclusive in regards to the possibility she'd been raped. He noted that the damage to the girl's labia occurred post-mortem and that despite this injury, her hymen remained unruptured, indicating she was still a virgin. 
He did ultimately concede, though, that this wasn't 100% proof Kalinka had not been raped. Yet despite this report clearly indicating Dieter Kronbach having been at fault in administering the injection that caused Kalinka Bamberski's death, German prosecutors declined to press charges against the doctor. No explanation was ever given why this occurred. In fact, as you'll hear, there are many times throughout Dieter Kronbach's life where it appears he received an infuriating level of special treatment by German authorities. No explanation has ever been given by the Germans why so much deference was given to Dieter Kronbach immediately following his stepdaughter's death. Not only was the man allowed to be president at Kalinka's autopsy, but he was also able to dictate how the investigation was conducted the morning her body was discovered. German police admitted they deferred to Kronbach's wishes and instead of conducting a proper investigation of the scene of her death, they instead went along with Kronbach's insistence that his stepdaughter's body be immediately shipped to the morgue. None of this sat well with Andrei Bamberski. Since German police seemed so reluctant to look further into the life of Dieter Kronbach, Andrei took it upon himself. His time as an accountant had given him a knack for digging up records. The further he looked, the more he realized Kronbach had a dark past that had been largely ignored. Kronbach was born in Dresden, Germany in 1935. He was the son of a Wehrmacht officer, and he survived the Allied firebombing of Dresden that killed at least 30,000 civilians. He was married and had children of his own when he began his affair with Andre's wife, Danielle. But Bamberski learned this was actually the man's second wife, and that his first wife died under mysterious circumstances. During the 1960s, Kronbach was married to a woman named Monica Hentz, who died suddenly at age 24. Monica's mother would provide a statement to police about her own suspicions that the handsome young doctor of internal medicine who swept her daughter off her feet had also murdered her. She described Kronbach as a jealous and abusive monster who viciously beat her daughter and threatened to kill her if she ever left him. Then in 1969, Monica Hentz was stricken with a mysterious illness that left her mute, blind, and paralyzed. And yet no suspicion ever fell on Kronbach. Not only that, but after Hentz was rushed to the hospital, there came a moment when Kronbach muscled aside the other doctors in order to administer an injection that he later identified as snake venom. Kronbach's wife died hours later of a cerebral hemorrhage. As unbelievable as it seems, no charges were filed against Kronbach, and his wife's cause of death was officially reported as a thrombosis of the basilar artery. As the years went on, by his own admission, Dieter Kronbach continued to carry out a string of affairs with other women. During the 1980s, he would even admit to drugging Danielle with sedatives so that he could carry on affairs in the same apartment while she slept. Even more disturbing, it would later come out that Kronbach also liked to administer anesthetics to women in his own medical clinic so that he could rape them while they remained unconscious. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. About a year after Klinka's death, realizing German authorities were fully intending to let the matter of his daughter's death rest, 
Andrei Bambersky decided to take his quest for justice up another notch. He traveled to Lindau during Oktoberfest and began passing out thousands of flyers throughout town that identified Dieter Kronbach as the man who raped and murdered his daughter. The flyers stated that Kronbach's crimes were being covered up by police and prosecutors, and he begged for any help anyone could provide in bringing the man to justice. Later that afternoon, Bambersky was accosted by Dieter Kronbach's 17-year-old son and 19-year-old daughter. They were accompanied by two policemen who promptly arrested Bambersky and charged him with defamation of character against Kronbach, as well as disturbing the peace and injuring the reputation of the prosecutor. Andre was held for 24 hours in police custody. After he was finally released, he was ordered to hand over all his cash and his possession, about 2,000 Deutschmarks, before being allowed to return home to France. He was then tried in absentia, and sentenced to six months in prison for a fine of 400,000 Deutschmarks, either of which made it impossible for him to set foot back on German soil until the statute of limitations would run out five years later. With no recourse for justice in Germany, Andre then turned to the French courts for help. Since Kalinka had been a French citizen at the time of her death, French authorities were allowed to launch their own murder investigation on German soil. After two more years of constant prodding of the French government, in 1985, forensic specialists finally exhumed Kalinka's remains for further analysis. This disinterment failed to turn up any new clues, but it did reveal something else surprising. Kalinka's genitalia were missing. Neither the German forensic laboratory nor Dr. Holman, who performed the autopsy, would admit to removing Kalinka's private parts. Nor could anyone give a proper explanation where those parts had disappeared to. Without her sexual organs, it was impossible to determine an official rape charge. In 1988, German authorities turned over tissue samples previously taken from Kalinka's body to be analyzed by French scientists. But they were unable to turn over blood samples obtained years before because, for some inexplicable reason, Dr. Spann had thrown them out. French forensic tests were able to confirm that Kalinka had asphyxiated on her own vomit. Although without the blood samples, it remained impossible for French authorities to officially tie the injection Kronbach gave her to her death. By this point, despite a mountain of circumstantial evidence, Andre Bambersky was having a difficult time understanding how an obscure physician from Lindau could have so many people in the German government protecting him. It's true that Kronbach had once worked with the German consulate, but Andre began to suspect the man's influence went deeper than that. Bambersky suspected that Kronbach may have actually worked for German intelligence, although he had no concrete proof to back these suspicions up. But despite one roadblock after another being thrown up in the French investigator's direction, French prosecutors still agreed to charge Dieter Kronbach with voluntary homicide on April 8, 1993. The French prosecutor petitioned German authorities to arrest Kronbach and deliver him into their custody, but the Germans refused. So instead, Kronbach was tried in absentia and sentenced to 15 years in prison. This conviction didn't appear to phase Kronbach one bit. He continued living as he always did, the life of a wealthy playboy. As well as being a respected doctor in Bavaria, Kronbach was also a member of his local equestrian club, and he also enjoyed sailing in Lindau's Yacht Club. By 1989, he and Danielle finally divorced. A little over two years later, he married his fourth wife, Elke Freilich, who, like the man's previous spouses, was a decade younger than him. 
That marriage would dissolve not long after as well when his fourth wife grew fed up with his constant string of infidelities. While all this was going on, German authorities continued to insist the death of Kalinka Bamberski remained a closed case, therefore rendering the French murder conviction invalid. Then in 1997, Kronbach's darkest impulses reared their head once again. Only this time it happened so publicly that even the German authorities couldn't ignore them. On February 11, 1997, a 16-year-old girl named Laura Stiel visited Kronbach's clinic in Lindau for an endoscopic examination. At the time, his assistant was at lunch, leaving Kronbach and the girl alone in the office. He told the girl the probe would likely be painful, and he offered to knock her out with an anesthetic beforehand. The girl agreed to take the injection, but she awoke prematurely, only to find Kronbach lying on top of her naked. Stiel immediately went to her parents and reported what had happened. That evening, Bamberski received a phone call from a reporter, who informed him that Kronbach had been arrested for the rape of one of his patients. Six months later, Kronbach was tried and convicted of raping a minor. He was ordered to surrender his medical license and he was sentenced to just two years in prison. Then, citing a lack of a prior criminal record in Germany, as well as his prestige in the community, the judge suspended the sentence and set Kronbach free. Among those in attendance at the day of that trial was Andre Bamberski. The statute of limitations had run out on the charges against him, allowing him to return to Germany once again. When Andre heard the verdict and realized Kronbach would walk free once again, he silently wept. While this outrageous verdict was being announced, a crowd of angry protesters gathered outside the courthouse. This included six more women, all former patients of Kronbach, who claimed the doctor had raped them as well. Each of these women said they had kept quiet all this time either because of the man's status in the community or because the drugs he'd administered had fogged their memories. Kronbach later gave an interview to a French radio reporter in which he shrugged off these accusations. In the case of Flora Steele, he even blamed the victim. He told the interviewer the girl wanted to have sex with him, blowing it all off by saying it was over in just a few minutes anyway. He once again denied raping and murdering Kalinka. He told the reporter that Bamberski was a crazy old man and that he had no need to seduce Kalinka. After all, he was already sleeping with Bamberski's wife. One day, a couple years later, Andre got into his car and drove back to Germany. He headed to the tiny German village near Lake Constance where Kronbach lived. He walked up to the doctor's front door and knocked. Kronbach answered. It was the first time in years the two men had spoken directly to one another. Andre took a deep breath and said what he'd come to say. Kronbach, I will always try to bring you back to France to be judged. I will not stop. Kronbach told him he was crazy and that he was just out for vengeance. Bamberski insisted that Kronbach raped his little girl. Kronbach told him he'd let the police sort it out, then shut the door in the man's face. In 1999, Andre Bamberski quit his job to devote himself full-time toward bringing Dieter Kronbach to justice. He knew that Kronbach would never dare cross the border into France voluntarily, but he had a vague hope that the man might slip up and get arrested during one of his frequent trips to Austria and Switzerland and from there be deported to France. Knowing this, Andre visited many Austrian and Swiss police departments and left behind photos and newspaper clippings explaining the case against Kronbach. 
Most of the police treated him politely, although it was clear they were largely just humoring him. In 2000, on a train ride, an Austrian policeman recognized Kronbach from photos Bambersky had left behind at his department and placed him under arrest. But an Austrian judge later accepted Kronbach's attorney's argument that the trial in France had been illegal and allowed the man to go free. In early 2001, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, France, ruled that the country's trials in absentia were illegal. This immediately voided the conviction against Kronbach. Afterwards, the government was ordered to pay the doctor 100,000 French francs, equivalent to $20,000 U.S. in restitution. By now, most of Andre Bambersky's friends and family members were encouraging him to give up and move on. Dieter Kronbach was simply above the law. But Andre Bambersky refused to quit. He maintained a website about his daughter's case, and from that a group of more than a thousand supporters formed, named Justice for Kalinka. Andre continued hiring private investigators and burning through his savings in order to track Kronbach's movements. Over time, they noticed Kronbach had developed a strange habit of disappearing during the week, only to return home to Lindau on the weekends. No one had any idea where he was disappearing to. In early 2006, a woman in the German town of Rodenthal went for a routine medical exam only to discover that her regular physician had committed suicide by hanging. Something struck her about the man's replacement as odd, so that night she did a Google search on Dieter Kronbach, only to find out far more than she had ever imagined. She watched a German documentary about the death of Kalinka Bamberski, and afterwards she reported to police that Kronbach was currently practicing medicine without a license. Police arrested Kronbach, who later learned that the man had been secretly working as a substitute physician in 28 different hospitals and clinics throughout Germany. Since he'd been forced to give up his medical license and his 1997 rape conviction, Kronbach had continued practicing medicine using a photocopy of his license. Until his discovery in Rodenthal, none of his employers had ever bothered to look into his background. Following his arrest, Kronbach was examined by two psychiatrists who wrote that the man was a chronic liar a narcissist with delusions of grandeur, and a sexual predator. He proudly admitted to them his numerous sexual conquests, including once when he drugged and raped the 16-year-old niece of his cleaning lady. Through it all, Kronbach insisted he'd done nothing wrong, and that the many women he'd assaulted had wanted him to do it. After a two-day trial, Kronbach was found guilty and sentenced to two years and four months in prison. But this was only a minor victory to Andre Bambersky. Kronbach only served 18 months of his sentence before being released once again. After his release, Kronbach went to live in the German town of Scheidig, just inside the Austrian border. Then in October 2009, Bambersky heard rumors the man had once again begun illegally working as a doctor. Bambersky traveled to Scheidig himself to investigate, hoping to catch Kronbach in the act and get him sent back to prison. But when Bambersky began asking around the neighborhood about his mortal enemy, he soon learned that Kronbach's landlord had put his house up for sale and that Kronbach planned on leaving for West Africa sometime during the coming weeks. If that happened, Bambersky knew Kronbach would finally be out of his grasp forever. Then in early October, Bambersky received a phone call from a mysterious man who only identified himself as Anton and who had a proposition for him. Anton met with Andre the following morning. He claimed to be a Kosovar immigrant and that he was sympathetic to Bambersky's quest for justice. 
He offered to help Bamberski out by kidnapping Kronbach and dropping him over the French border where he could be arrested. For this, Anton only asked for 20,000 euros to cover his expenses. Up to this point, Andre had kept his activities strictly within the law, but by now, with Kronbach about to flee the country, he felt he had no other choice. So he arranged to pay Anton the money, and then he waited for something to happen. A week later, on October 17th, Bamberski received a phone call at his home from a woman who spoke French with a heavy German accent. She told him to prepare to go to Mulhouse, a large town in France's Alsace region just across the German border. Five hours later, the woman called again, telling him that Kronbach was in Mulhouse and gave him an address. Immediately after she hung up, Bamberski phoned the Mulhouse Police Department. I am Bamberski, he said. I had a daughter, Kalinka, who was raped and murdered by Kronbach, and there is an international warrant out for his arrest. Please go find him on the Rue de Talil. The policeman told him a woman had just phoned the station and provided the same information. Twenty minutes later, the officer phoned back that they had found Kronbach and that he was in terrible shape. They found the old man in a dingy courtyard behind a pair of four-story buildings. His hands and feet were bound and his mouth was gagged. He'd been severely beaten and his skull was fractured, but he was still alive. After Kronbach described to police the story of his beating and abduction, they soon arrested Andre Bamberski for the kidnapping. They also quickly located the mysterious Anton, whose full name turned out to be Anton Kresnicki. The German authorities demanded Dieter Kronbach be returned to them, but the French police refused. Instead, French prosecutors conducted a new trial against Kronbach for the rape and murder of Kalinka Bamberski. This time, all the evidence that had been gathered against him was brought to light. In addition, numerous women came forward and testified how the doctor had drugged and raped them over the years. Even Danielle Gonin, Andre Bamberski's ex-wife, came forward and testified against Kronbach. Although at the time of her daughter's death, Danielle was satisfied with Kronbach's explanation of how Kalinka died, now she was no longer so certain. She described Kronbach as a seducer who held her under tight control. She admitted that on the morning her daughter's body was found, she suspected Kronbach had slipped her some sedatives because of how soundly she slept the night before. This had become a routine to her since Kronbach often knocked her out in order for him to bring home one of his mistresses. Although Dieter Kronbach never admitted to murdering Kalinka Bamberski, Andre Bamberski is convinced he knew what Kronbach's motive was to kill her. In short, control. Kronbach was a man who lived to dominate others. But on one small occasion, Danielle had defied him and was going to allow Kalinka to return home to live with her father in France. This was something Kronbach could not allow. So he murdered her rather than allow the girl to leave. The trial concluded on October 22, 2009, nearly 30 years after Kalinka Bamberski was murdered. It ended with Dieter Kronbach giving one final plea attesting to his innocence. But the three magistrates and nine jurors were not swayed. Later that day, the verdict was revealed. Dieter Kronbach was guilty of voluntary violence leading to unintentional death with aggravated circumstances. This was a crime punishable by up to 30 years in prison, although Dieter Kronbach received a sentence of only 15 years. But considering Kronbach was 74 years old at the time, this was almost certainly a death sentence. Although Kronbach's attorneys have tried to appeal this verdict on numerous occasions, all appeals have since been rejected. As for Andre Bamberski, he was finally tried for his role in kidnapping Dieter Kronbach in May 2014. 
He freely confessed to hiring Anton Krasnicki to abduct Kronbach. For this, he received a one-year suspended jail sentence. Andre still lives in his hometown of Peshbesk, where he can be close to Kalinka's grave at the local Catholic church. He generally visits her grave several times a month. He brings her flowers, and he talks to her about his day. His proudest memory came right after Dieter Kronbach's trial and conviction. It was on that day he went to Klinka's grave and knelt over her headstone. He whispered to her, Klinka, you see, I promised I would give you justice. Now you can rest in peace. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Mary, Chris, Allison, and Rita. You're all amazing. Just a reminder to you that supporters from my Patreon account get access to all sorts of goodies, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and signed notes from yours truly, as well as our Patreon-exclusive mini-episodes. In fact, I have a doozy of a story I've been saving that should be out right around the same time as this episode. If you're not on Patreon but would still like to help support the show, one easy way you can do so is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can find us on most of your other favorite podcast apps as well. Besides that, you can find us elsewhere on the interwebs on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Feel free to drop us a line at our email, theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com, and let us know how we're doing. I'd like to hear from you folks. Thanks again for listening, and before we go, I want to play a promo for another podcast you might like from a couple of friends of mine. Take it, Andy and Art. Do you love conspiracies, UFOs, ghosts, and all things bizarre? Do you want to listen to two skeptics judge the plausibility of these offbeat topics? Do you want the whole enchilada? Then you, dear listener, need to hear Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. Check out new episodes every Wednesday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find fine podcasts. Or log on to the World Wide Web with your favorite browser. Mine is Netscape. And hit up MrBunkersConspiracyTime.com. Hey, we'll see you in the bunker.